It's a bit weird, this one. As you know, we're moving. But I felt like I couldn't let the 111st episode and my birthday episode go by without marking it. So what we're going to do is we're going to try and do an entire alphabet of little history snippets. I'm excited because this is... I like it when we do firsts. I feel like there's a lot of pressure off of me as well because last time we frequented the airwaves, I... um, You talked a lot about a queen. I talked about a lot about a queen. Now I'm just going to take a back seat and uh, enjoy your Enjoy my 24 because, like I said, X and Z didn't manage to get. But hopefully... All these little little stories that wouldn't quite make a full episode. You'll you'll appreciate them, and we'll do it in a more free flowy way. Wonderful. A lot less lot less editing involved. That's why you chose it, isn't it? That may be why I chose it. Yes. <laughs> hey up! I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with this collection of stories. Begins with the letter A, and a man called John Aylington. I thought you were just going to be like a man. I was a like, man. you can't put A like in front of. It's like when you used to play. Oh, what was that game uh, where you had to like? You got a letter. The dice were all letters, and then you had to. You had to get like a, a zoo animal that began with A, and blah blah blah. And then everyone put like a giraffe or <laughs> like a something. Aardvark. I mean, it's got two A's. Double bubble. I mean, it was just an example, but that's where I thought you were going. Amen. No, all of these, it will be the surname. I've gone with the surname. So we've got uh, John okay. Aylington, who, because we're called consistently eccentric, let's start with a true, a true Victorian eccentric. Because although he was a farmer, well, I say a farmer, he was a landowner who you know owned a farm. He believed that he had a responsibility to educate the workers on his estate in Letchworth. He he felt he wasn't just going to take from his workforce. He was going to give back. You do know Letchworth, where my grandparents are from, don't you? I, I knew that you were from around that area. There we go. Where well, we there go? you go. So yeah. he's one of your people, yeah, John Aylington. And the way he decided to educate his workforce is while they were toiling in the fields, he would read Shakespeare at them. Cool. Loudly, and I hope he did the voices. Because if he didn't <laughs> do the voices, are you truly reading? Uh, no. He also decided, you know, literature, that's good. How about the other bits of the humanities? And he went for geography because he had a big lake on his estate and he decided that what he'd do is he'd turn that lake into a scale model of the world. And then he would allow his workforce to take turns rowing him around his lake where he would point out the different land masses and, and talk to them about the countries and the people. Well, so he would have things placed in the lake to yeah, he represent had, shapes of Yeah, he had islands. Manu- I, I mean, I'm guessing the workforce spent a lot of time on this. You know, these man-made islands within the lake representing the different continents. Do you know what I'm getting? 1990s... Um, Fred, the weatherman. Yeah, yeah in, in, Liver- in the touched, Liverpool Ducks. Yeah, turns out he touched kids. Oh, did he? He did. He was a dirty sex pest, was Fred. Oh, I was no. devastated when that came out. But yes, mm. the, the, the giant weather map that everyone... You always wanted people to fall off, and they didn't do it with enough regularity, people, did they? I mean, people did fall off. I, I recall mm. seeing people fall off. And there was off. at least one streaker. 
He jumped on. Fred, Brilliant. that's how we should have known. He never turned away. He never turned away. <laughs> the signs were there. The signs were there. So once he'd forced them to row him around this fake world that he'd had them create, he would then quiz them. Because, you know, education, you can only tell that you're providing a good education if, if those people can, can pass the knowledge back onto you. Mm. So imagine, imagine that, especially if you're like a, um, an itinerant sort of fruit picker or something. You know, you go into the farm just to help in autumn and you get dragged into this weird semi-school curriculum life. <laughs> and what is that place there, sir? He was, yeah, he was very excited, as you can imagine. Someone who was so into learning and knowledge by the announcement of the Great Exhibition in 1851, he decided he was going to take his entire workforce. But these were these were rural people. Mm. These were people used to the tiny, you know, village of Letchworth. They weren't they weren't ready for the big city. Yeah. And he thought, well, what can I do to help them? He had them construct a scale model of London. Okay. Well, not all of it. That'd be stupid. Just the area, say, the how... area between Hyde Park and King's Cross. <laughs> right. Um, so that they could learn the route from the train station to the Crystal Palace, as if. If you were going to the Great Exhibition, you wouldn't just follow the stream of people. And the Crystal Palace, no longer there, R.I.P. But it was a very uh, large, uh, unusual looking structure. I'm pretty sure you would have clocked it in a non-high-rised city at the time. You didn't need to get right bob on it in order to see it. It was, yeah. And I'm sure there were signs. Probably. (laughs) But anyway, he decided that they needed to learn. He had half of his workers learn the route to the Crystal Palace. And he had the other half learn the route back. What? Surely it's the same route, unless it's one way. This is what I thought. It's got to be the same way. Anyway, the people who were learning the route there had to wear a ribbon on their right leg. And the people learning the route back had to wear a ribbon on their left leg. And he (laughs) drilled them on this, on his tiny model of London. I love it For an entire week. I love it. Well, you won't love the outcome because he decided that they failed the test and he didn't take them. He was so concerned he might lose some of them. He's like, sorry, you turned left when you should have turned right. I thought you were going to like, it was going to get like a cadre, like a a brander, like he's going to brand them. (laughs) That's mine. (laughs) You failed. Take apart the scale model of London. Get back in the boats. We're going back to geography. Come on. (laughs) I said, no, you're not going to go and see it. I know it was. I know you were excited, but Harry couldn't learn it, could he? Harry couldn't do it. He just let us all down. Yeah, he. You know that that was a letdown. But he was generally a very amiable, very generous man. He had his house open to all comers six days a week, including tramps, homeless people, you know, people who've fallen on hard times. They could all come in, and he'd give them food. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's... Okay, now I've got mixed feelings now. He also, just in case, because, you know, he's trying to be as accommodating as possible, he would always have the um, sort of French doors to his drawing room thrown open so that if people wanted to, they could just ride straight in on horseback. Because he didn't want, you know, to put them out if they felt like, oh, well, I don't want to leave Dobbin outside. And he could generally be found playing bawdy songs on his grand piano and drinking copious amounts. And just generally being the life and soul of this weird party that he was living when do he wasn't know, educating the masses. Do we know what the house was called? I do not know what oh, the house I'm was I'm really intrigued, just obviously because I have a, a local connection, I'm intrigued. Well, so. you can you can look up John Aylington. 
But as with everybody, he got old uh, and he tried to come to terms with the idea of death by having his workers stop rowing him round his world lake and start carrying him around his garden in an open coffin. What? Whilst he was still alive? While he was still alive, he'd just lie in this open coffin just to get a feel for it. What? He fell ill um, and was prescribed medicine, but he didn't trust the medicine. Why would you? And instead, for reasons best known to himself, asked his gardener to take it for a week. He decided that if the gardener, after a week, hadn't died, it was probably okay for him. But unfortunately, that was a bit too long. Yeah. I mean... He's very eccentric. This is definitely living up to the, the title of the, the show. And when they, when they said, look, the gardener's fine. Look at him. Still alive. Will you take the medicine? He refused one last time, downed a glass of brandy, and fell backwards dead. <laughs> so that is our A, John Aylington. I love it. 1795 to 1863. A oh. true, true. I mean, that is the definition of an eccentric. This is brilliant. So, B. And for B, we have an attempted murderer. Yes. In Terence Bell, who's from South Sea in Hampshire. Now, he worked as a building society clerk, which sounds very boring to me. Do you get building societies still? Yeah, nationwide, yeah. is nationwide that building is, society? Yeah. I know Bradford and Bingley short, but I'm, I'm sure there's more than just nationwide. Yeah, I... Um... Isn't the the Woolwich used to be one, but that got brought out by Barclays. Anyhow, sorry, go on. So he's, he's living this boring existence with apparently a very boring wife because he decided he didn't want to live with her anymore. But rather than just divorce, he's like, I may as well make something out of her. Uh, and he took out an insurance policy for a quarter of a million. Right. Which, right. I mean, that should have been the first alarm bell for her because... He was the one providing all of the money into the into the house. Hmm. So she must have taken it like a compliment, like, oh. He thinks I'm worth this amount of money. Yeah, he oh, doesn't need Adele. it. He doesn't need it because he's the worker, but he just, oh, makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Anyway, for some reason, the insurance company didn't flag this as odd. Uh, and they allowed him to take out this insurance policy in 1980. Almost immediately... He tried to poison her by putting a lethal dose of mercury into a strawberry flan, which he was going to feed her. (laughs) That's very specific, isn't it? It is. I don't know if that was like her favourite dessert and he was thinking, well, I'll just... I do enjoy a a cheese flan. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Well, he went... She's she's a fan of the sweet, unfortunately. And he, you know, like a last meal that she doesn't know she's ordered. (laughs) Here you are, darling, have this strawberry flan. And she took it. And he was watching, waiting for that first bite. And then it fell off the plate onto the floor and she put it in the bin. For God's sake. What a waste of mercury. Yeah, and he'd, he put a few drops of this mercury that he bought into the strawberry flan. But he, he escalated so fast and so hard because the next day he put the entirety of the rest of the bottle into a mackerel that he cooked I mean, for surely her. you're going to taste that, though. Like, you need to do it in small... Well, this is the thing. Doses. It's like, I'll be very sneaky. I'll just do it like this. It'll look like... And then just, okay, well, all of it's going in the mackerel now. He was desperate, man. Maybe he wasn't, like, as rich as before. Maybe just needed extra income. Well, the thing is, I don't know if he did this prior to cooking and preparing the mackerel, because by the time he'd prepared it as a meal, she was able to eat it, and she didn't have any side effects whatsoever. 
So I don't know mm. if you like, you know, like when you um you cook the alcohol off when you're using like wine for sauces yeah, and stuff. Yeah. It's like he cooked the mercury off somehow. <laughs> so to this point, she's probably thinking, oh, I didn't think he was interested in me. He's, he's buying my favourite desserts. He's cooking me lovely meals. She was thinking, not that he, he didn't want to be with her, but that the romance was maybe rekindling. Yes, you know, yes. He, I mean... he was trying. He wasn't looking elsewhere for his midlife crisis. He was trying to reconnect with her. And that suspicion, probably for her, only grew when he announced he was taking her on holiday hmm. to Yugoslavia. What? Yeah. Okay, that's... Uh... I mean, you can tell it's the 80s because Yugoslavia doesn't exist anymore. Hmm. But he took... Spe- wasn't Yugoslavia... I can't even say it. Yugoslavia. Wasn't it like a war zone around that time? I think this was just prior to, to the war zone. But the specific reason he wanted to take her was because Yugoslavia apparently has lots of nice cliffs. And he suggested, <laughs> well, do you know what would be a lovely photograph? If I had you stood right on the edge of that cliff there, and then I can get the full panorama in behind you. If you hold your arms open, even better would be if you face the other way like you're looking at Onto the sunset. the panoramic view mm. and you're you're opening your arms as if to embrace Yugoslavia and it turned out that she was actually quite scared of heights and refused to go anywhere near the edge of the cliff that he'd <laughs> he carefully selected for her she's having she's having none of it do you know this reminds me of um can you remember chitty chitty bang bang Oh, where, where the, uh, they're trying to kill... The count and the... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's trying to kill, kill her. He's like, you're my tushy face. And then um, he's just you're trying to, like... Bear, yeah. yeah, cut her head off and stuff. <laughs> She's none the wiser. <laughs> She's just obliviously just yeah. ducking oh, at the right moment. He loves me. He really loves me. Well, it got to this farcical level because he wasn't done. This is, you know, he's tried three times to kill her. Mm. They got back home. And as many people do, you go to a foreign country, you pick up an illness. So she was in bed with yeah. with an illness, and he just set fire to her bedroom door. What? Just straight up set <laughs> That's fire. That's not even subtle now, is it? But they lived in flats, and another neighbour was coming home and put it out. <laughs> just saw it. I bet he's like seething, isn't he? Oh, uh, you could say that because the next thing he did was set fire to the entire goddamn house. <laughs> just like okay. That was too subtle. Let's just burn the entire thing to the ground. She escaped unhurt. She'd recovered enough from her illness that she was able to shimmy out of a window. Good. Finally, a final Hail Mary. He asked her to stand in the middle of the road so that he could test the brakes on his car by driving straight at her. <laughs> what? This is hilarious. And she naturally refused. Yeah. Uh, how about no? This is my favourite part of this story. She, even at this point, didn't suspect him. (laughs) And the only reason we know that he tried to kill his wife seven times was that he confessed to the police because he was just so sick of trying. He just wanted her out of her life, his life, that much. And apparently, when she was told of her husband's plan by Constable Harry Legg, which is a great name, she was dumbstruck and said that she had no idea. Well, if someone asks you, she can't be very bright, can she? If someone's asked you to stand in the middle of the road whilst they drive their car at you, Mm. what? And he actually had long enough that he served a prison sentence, was released, 
because it was only attempted murder, and died a free man in 1997. That's Terence Bell, a man who could not kill his wife. That was enjoyable. I enjoyed that. Shall we move on to C? Yeah. So, for C, we have an older gentleman called Sid Cheney, who became known as the Bus Pass Bandit. (laughs) Because having lived the first three quarters of a century of his life as an upstanding citizen, he decided that at some point in those years, banks had ripped him off and that it was time for him to take revenge. He'd had enough. He'd, he'd seen had the enough. light. He'd, he'd gone and he picked up his pension and he'd gone, wait a minute, Yeah. I've paid into the system. Where's my reward? Mm. And he decided he'd just take that reward. Good for him. In 1994, he went to a Barclays bank in Camden Town and said that he had... £25,000, but he kept forgetting where he put it, and he'd really like to open an account, um, and as soon as he found that money, uh, that's what he'd be putting into the account. So could he open an account with nothing in, but a line of credit? How can you misplace £25,000? Well, he opened the account in the name of his ferret, Sir Andrew Large. So they obviously thought, well, he's a sir. He's a knight of the realm. Of course mm. he'd have 25 grand in loose change that he'd just misplaced. Yeah. And of course we can trust someone who's been knighted by the, by the queen to, yeah. to honour his commitment to put that £25,000 into the account. I'm sure he won't abuse the line of credit we've just given him. He then did the same thing at a National Westminster Bank, <laughs> at a National Westminster Bank even, where he opened an account in the name of his cat. Mr. Mm-hmm. Sniffles. <laughs> what? Using the same trick. So nobody questioned the fact that he was now called Mr. Sniffles and that he apparently had 25 grand. I mean, that's not even believable. Is it not? Who, is Sniffles a name? Um, I guess no. Mm. But that, they seem convinced enough by him that they, they did the same thing. You need to call yourself like Lord Farquhar or as, something. As Barclays Bank and they went, yeah... It's fine. You you can yes. Once you find the twenty five grand, you come and deposit it. We'll open the the account with nothing in it, but obviously you have credit here now. Sir Andrew Large and Mister Sniffles. Do you know they didn't turn back up to those banks in person? But what they did do was run up debts of over one hundred and seventeen thousand pounds in six months. Oh, uh, I mean, I'm kind of on this guy's side. Mm. Now he he described this um, massive fraud as getting naughty. And whenever he'd, whenever he got naughty in in a place, he would then move to a different place, um, so that he wouldn't be caught. Yeah. What year is this? This this was in the nineties and the early two thousands that he was he was operating. I mean, I suppose it's pre. I mean, technology is obviously there, but it's not the best. Yeah, he's he's not being. Um, the internet isn't quite the tool it is for detection that it no. that it is now. Um, and this was still, I'm guessing you still have paying in books at quite a few banks at this stage. Yeah. I remember having a paying in book for my Bradford and Bingley account. Yeah. And that would have been around this time. So in order to relocate, because he was living in um, council accommodation, which was, there was still a, a bit of it around in the 90s, um, he would throw a brick through his own window and then he would claim that the estate that he was living on at the time had gotten too rough for an old gent like him and demand a move. Uh, so, so they'd move him. Amazing. And then in the new location, he'd go to the local banks, he'd open more accounts in fake names, and he'd run up massive debts. 
And then he, he just to have like ID and stuff. Was this pre? Uh, this I don't know how he managed it. I think it was just the fact that he was seventy-five. And he was probably an older, wise-looking gentleman. Yeah, and people were like, oh, no, we'll take it on trust because look at him. He's a granddad. (laughs) He's so cute. The thing is, even when he got caught, none of the banks would press charges because of how stupid it was. Oh, because it made them look like idiots. It made them look absolutely stupid. He opened an account at one time uh, in the name of his budgie, who just so happened to be called Captain Manwaring. That's so funny. Oh, my God. Uh, so yeah, he he got away with it, and eventually, even though the British banks they weren't going to press charges on him, American Express decided that they were they'd had enough, and they didn't care about the bad publicity. They were going to try and chase down the eleven thousand five hundred pounds that he defrauded them of. And that's a relatively low mark in comparison to other banks. Yeah. I know it's still eleven grand that you've nicked. But you know what our country's like. We love an underdog. We love somebody who's a bit of a cheeky chappy. And although he was found guilty, the judge sentenced him to pay it back at the rate of £1 a week for 230 years. Oh, so obviously he wasn't going to live that long. That's so funny. Bless him. Even better, after this, Barclays, they felt so sorry for him. They paid for an all-expenses trip for him to go to Las Vegas as part of the Jeanette MacDonald fan club, of which he was the um, chairman (laughs) That is uh, publicity gold for them, though, yeah. isn't it? So he, he defrauded, and we're talking, you know, over half a million from various financial institutions over the course of about eight years. And not only was he essentially able to keep all of that money, but one of the people he defrauded flew him to America to have his dreams come true. I love it. Yeah. That's brilliant. Oh, that's warmed my soul. Yeah. Sid Cheney, he only died very recently as well. I've just realised I call you Joel there. I don't know where that came from. Your new name is Joel. My new name is Joel. Joel Heathcote. Uh, I'll get used to it. Yeah. Are you ready for a D? Are you ready yes. for the D? <laughs> yes. Let's get into the D, because I've, yeah, I've got you a nice Scott. Oh, lovely. Called James Duff. <laughs> Wonderful. Who was around in the 1700s. He was known... As a bit of a character around Edinburgh, and first gained notoriety when he entered himself as a runner in the Leith horse races. Ah, oh, Leith, that's my old stomping ground. But he, he lined up alongside the thoroughbreds with a whip and ran off down the course, whipping himself, finishing dead last. But I, I don't even think he won the uh, you know appreciation or the the respect of the crowd. I think they all just kind of watched. Slightly confused, like, why are, I mean, we, that's why are we allowing though. this man to do this? That's brilliant. Shouldn't the authorities have stepped in? Can you please put him in an asylum, sir? But the reason he's best known in Edinburgh, possibly, possibly to this day by some people, is that he decided that over the course of 40 years, he should attend absolutely every funeral in the city. And not only should he attend, regardless of if he knew the person or not, he should be leading the procession in a full morning costume that he put together with a black cravat, a cape, and a hat that he dyed even deeper black than when he bought it, so that it could show that he was super depressed <laughs> and super mourning. So he was an actor, darling. He, he was, only he wasn't asked to do this. <laughs> he just turned up at a funeral one day and started walking in front of the funeral procession in his homemade outfit. This is brilliant. And then the next funeral... He turned up again and again 
and again. And he did it so much that it became expected. Ah, it was okay. just something that happened if you died in Edinburgh. That so you just hoped bloke, that he would come? Well, you didn't have to hope he would. James Duff would turn up and he would stand at the front of your funeral procession. And for some reason, because this always happens when British people get awkward, people started to pay him. <laughs> I love this. And it, be- it became a custom that what you had to do was you had to collect from all the mourners and anyone who was lining the streets for the funeral procession, and all of that money had to be given to James Duff. Oh, entrepreneur. Yeah, I know. Do you know, when I die, I want to put a stipulation somewhere to pay some actors or something just to stand, like, really shadily, like, about 10 metres behind everyone else. Like, so it's like, I've got a secret life, but people don't know about it, so they turn around and they're like... Who are these people that are like sobbing in the background? Like, who are they? Like, did he have a different life? Did he have? <laughs> what was he up to? What is this conspiracy? And It'd I be great went... if you had them crying, but they were crying different names, like, oh, Eduardo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my Latin oh. lover. What? <laughs> what was going on with this man? Yeah, I just want everyone to be like, what the hell? He told was me he'd he gone doing? to visit castles. He was obviously living some kind of secret agent fantasy. <laughs> But Dorf, this sounds like the perfect thing. You know, you just turn up, it's an hour, and you're getting paid. He became convinced that someone would try and use his collections of money to uh, conscript him into the army. Because, you know, if you were given the king's shilling and you accepted it, you could be con- forcefully conscripted. I really didn't know that. So even though he had this amazing money-making scheme, mm. he started to refuse all offers of money. Oh, because he didn't want to go. Because he didn't want to go. And this was to the point where he just, he ran out of money and his friends, of which he had many, apparently, were like, no, at some point, James, you're going to have to accept some of this money we're collecting in this hat because you're not eating anymore, James. <laughs> Come on. Well, I suppose if, um, yeah, no, I don't know what my point was. Sorry, go on. <laughs> it will come back to me, I'm sure. And as, as with many predicaments like this, where someone's being stupid, it was up to his mother to solve the problem. And she convinced her nephew you know, his cousin, who was only a little lad, he was only like seven or eight, to go with James on the funeral processions as a tiny mini mourner to accept the money on James's behalf because as of his age, the cousin, he, he couldn't be conscripted into the army. Mm, yeah, wise, clever and mother. The thing I don't get is, why did this not turn into a family business? Why did Edinburgh still not have members of the Duff family sort of... Still walking at the front of every funeral procession. That would be like an institution, wouldn't it? I'd love it. Yeah. I mean, this is what a brilliant chap. What an entrepreneur. Now, we talked about a poisoner who was unsuccessful yeah. for our B. For our E, let's talk about a more successful poisoner. Yes. A Victorian poisoner called yes. Christina Edmonds. <gasps> yes. Because in 1870, Miss Edmonds who was a spinster in Brighton, she developed sexual feelings for her doctor, (gasps) Dr. Beard. And Dr. Beard, he quite liked the attention and he liked the fact that she wrote some raunchy romantic letters, so he didn't kind of discourage her. I hope he had a bushy beard. No, no, like the beard uh, member of ZZ Top. He was the The only only one without, yeah. He was clean shaven. Couldn't, couldn't grow a beard if he wanted to. In fact, he had oh. alopecia. 
this it's completely bald, top to top to toe. But despite his smooth look, that was what was driving Christine Redmond's wild, and she imagined this future with him. He had a wife, though. She's a bit of a wrinkle. There was a Mrs. Beard already. Um. So Christina decided, mm, you know, if something were to happen to, to the first Mrs. Beard, that would leave, leave the path free for them to, to have their love, to express their love. So, because it was the Victorian era, she was able to just go out and buy some strychnine. Yeah, of course, you could. of course, you could yeah. buy anything from you? the corner shop. I imagine, um, saying that there were too many stray cats in the area, and she was she was going to do something about it. So, went, yep, that seems a reasonable uh, excuse for having a large quantity of strychnine. Away you go, love. There you are. I'll have it. And one evening, when Doctor Beard was out on his rounds, she turned up at his house with some poisoned chocolates and offered one to his wife, Mrs. Beard. She took it and she put it in her mouth and then almost immediately spat it out, saying that it had a very unpleasant taste. Hmm, it tastes of chemicals, sir. Yes. The next day, she had the galloping shits. <laughs> I've never heard them described as that. That is brilliant. But she recovered. And for reasons best known to herself, she decided she wouldn't tell her husband because this was the Victorian time and you didn't you didn't talk about your bowels, even to your significant other. No. He wouldn't no, no, mention no. that. No, no, no. Even though he is a doctor. No. Absolutely not. It's all gone and I'm sure it had nothing to do with that random woman with her crazy eyes offering me a chocolate that tasted of death. That <laughs> had nothing to do with it. I really want chocolate now. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, there's more chocolate in the story. Good. The thing is, although she didn't report what had happened, Christina Evans told Dr. Beard what she tried to do. Okay. Oh, okay. Probably hoping for some kind of encouragement from him. What, and then he'd be like, oh, yes. Like, like you don't kill... need to do that, darling. I will just divorce her. I can see the passion that you have mm. for me, that you would kill a woman. I mean, that's red flag territory, isn't it? If, you can, if you're trying to kill my wife. No, he, like... he sorted it. He, he, he said to her, you can't come in my house anymore. And then he warned his wife to be a little bit more careful. Okay. Without giving any context. Yeah. Then he went on a, an extended trip for three months. Because he's sorted that problem now. Oh, okay. Just leave the two ladies behind. Yeah, he's, he's told her to stay away. And I'm sure she'll respect that boundary. And he's told his wife to be careful. So nothing's going to go wrong at all. Yeah, it totally is. Now, Christina, she was worried that she'd lost him. So she decided she'd change her story and she would say that um, Mrs. Beard had been poisoned by accident. But in order for that to be true, other people would have to be poisoned by chocolates. So she bought lots and lots of chocolates from a local chocolatier called Mr. Maynard, laced all of them with strychnine, and then started distributing them liberally amongst the children of Brighton. I've heard this story. It's just, it's, it's come back to me now. Yeah. Amazing. Yes. Love it. On the 12th of June, 1871, four-year-old Sidney Barker died of convulsions within minutes of eating one of Mr. Maynard's chocolates. However, the coroner's verdict was accidental death. What? <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't suppose he checked for strychnine. Um, it's just like, well, sometimes kids fit and die. It's one of those mysteries of childhood. <laughs> 
So because because her her entire thing was she had to prove that Mr. Maynard was um, a poisoner, Miss Edmonds herself decided to write some letters to the police implicating him heavily in having poisoned a lot of his stock. So she's blaming the chocolatier chap. Yes, she's she's writing, and she wrote not only to the police, but also to the parents of the child that she had poisoned, saying, well, I've heard that he uses strychnine in place of cocoa powder. You can't see me here, but I'm shaking my head. Um, Dr. Beard, he he came back. He kind of looked at the newspapers and what was going on, and that there was this uh, worry about poison chocolates, and he sheepishly went to the police and when they compared the letters that had been sent to him by this woman to the letters that had been sent to um sydney's parents implicating the chocolatier it was quite clear they were from the same person so the raunchy letters yeah. and the deaf letters yeah and then he's like and she did try to poison my wife with chocolate you know i was going to report it to you but i had this conference in ipswich uh, and then i was going to visit family you know so I got to you as soon as I could. That's just crazy. At her trial in eighteen ninety, um, in eighteen seventy-two at the Old Bailey, Christine Redmond's mother, she tried, she tried to get her daughter off by saying that there was a long history of insanity in the family. Apparently, her father had suffered from acute mania. Her maternal grandmother had died of acute mania at the age of forty-three. Her brother was lodged in a mental institution, and her mother. She she suffered from something called hysterical paralysis. Okay. Which I assume is you go so crazy sometimes you can't move for all the crazy that's going on in your head. Yeah. The jury, they said that was very, very unfortunate. But, you know, it, insanity only works as a defence if you didn't know what you were doing at the time. And it was quite clear that Christina had spent a long time with this sort of scheme and this plot. She knew what she was doing. Yeah, it also didn't help when when they asked if she had anything to say in her own defence. She just screamed that she was pregnant with Dr Beard's baby. Oh, God. She was sentenced to death. Ah, okay. But because she was a woman, and because we were getting to the point where people thought it was a bit icky to be executing women, Mm. uh, it was commuted by the Home Secretary. um, And she died in Broadmoor at the age of, I believe... In her 90s, I think she was. I mean, that's probably a worse fate than death. Yeah, in 1907. Now, F. For fashion. Our, our F for fashion. <laughs> Turn to the left. No. For Turn to the right. A, a doctor from the 1700s called George Fordyce. Oh, what a name. Yeah. And he, he, was, he had a good name. He had a good, he had a good bedside manner, even. He could talk, which was useful, unlike me. <laughs> and he was very, very popular amongst the, the upper class. However, he was also um, an alcoholic. And... I mean, you've got to have your your flaws, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, yes. And it would have been fine if he'd done his drinking after he'd done his rounds, but he generally didn't follow that golden rule, which is oh, why oh, no. uh, he was once called to the sickbed of a very important posh lady. I don't know any more about the lady other than she had titles. Um, And he was already... He was soused. He was properly lit. He was steaming drunk. So much so that he couldn't even take her pulse. He was swaying so much, sweating so much, and he couldn't tell if 
the sensation he could feel was just his own skin vibrating or if it was actually, you know, her pulse in her wrist. I mean, this chap should have been struck off. Well, he, he, he was like, this is it. This is where it all falls apart. And he started having a go at himself. And the only thing she managed to hear was him mumbling, drunk by Jove, drunk. And then he stumbled off and he left. Okay. It's like, and that's it. You know, he probably went off and continued his bender. He's like, well, that's my career over. May as well enjoy the evening. He went and had some more champagne. He woke up the next day with a steaming hangover uh, and a messenger came to tell him that he needed to return to the woman um, who he'd, you know, unsuccessfully tried to take the pulse off. Yeah. And definitely got nowhere near diagnosing. And he was was very, very worried (laughs) that she was going to shout at him, say that she had rich friends, say that he he was never going to work in this town again, all that kind of stuff. Hmm but was greatly relieved when she begged him to forgive her, confessed that his diagnosis, that she was drunk, was completely right, and gave him £100 if he promised uh, to not tell anyone that she got in that state, (laughs) with a promise that she would never touch alcohol again. Okay. Now, one of the other reasons that, you know, he was so affected by the drink was that he'd, for some reason, decided to model his own eating habits on the habits of lion's. Okay. Because he'd, he'd, I'm guessing, been on safari. Yeah. I mean, he, all good gentlemen have. Yeah, they, they, they have a year out. He mm. was on his gap yard, and he noticed that these lions, they, they had great hair, they had great teeth, they had muscles on their muscles, and they only seemed to eat once a day, and only meat. Mm-hmm. Raw meat? Well, yeah. Um, he didn't quite go that far, but what he did do was he made sure that he only ever ate one meal a day at four o'clock. Okay. For 20 years, he did this. Right. And that... No snacking? No, no. Oh, no. Lions don't snack. So at four o'clock every afternoon for 20 years, he went to a place called Dolly's Chop House. Okay. Where he ordered a one and a half pound rump steak. Okay. And while that was being prepared, he would drink a tankard of ale, a quarter pint of brandy, and a bottle of port. <laughs> He'd then eat his steak, his meat, like the lion he was, and that was when he would start his rounds. No wonder he wasn't hungry if he's drinking all that port and stuff. Mm. But, I mean, what we're saying is at least 50% of his diet for 20 years was alcohol. Yeah. And it wasn't like the other, you know, had that much nutritional value. This is rump steak, it's not... Uh, you you would be very, uh, very unsurprised, actually, to learn that he died of gout oh, at the okay. age of 66. Yeah. The king's disease, for he was the king of beasts. George Fordyce What a lad Ate like a lion Ah, Drank like George Best I'm getting um, Who's that actor that was in Oliver Reed Oliver Reed I'm getting him vibes Oliver Reed could have played George Fordyce Definitely Oliver Reed was something else man. He was We've got a double for G Double G Double G OG Because the story is about a man called Arthur Gray. Okay. But it involves a young woman, and you can tell that this isn't from this century because she was considered a beauty, and her name was Griselda Murray. I love it. I mean, there's a name that needs a comeback. Griselda and Gertrude. There's not a single kid, you know, in the local school called Griselda, and I think that's a shame. You're just going to say to Evie tomorrow, we're changing your name? You'll be Griselda Heathcote. (laughs) To, today, your name is different. 
So, the reason that Arthur Gray and Griselda Murray co-own this story, really, is because Arthur Gray was a manservant in the household of the Murrays. Okay. He was a footman, which meant he had great calves, as we know. Yes, of course. In 1734, though, Murray, she was in a bed, just, you know, getting ready, getting ready to go sleepy-bys, when Gray burst into the room, brandishing a sword which he admitted he had brought with him to put her in fear and to force her to comply because he was going to go and do a ravishing. Oh, the scandal. He, yes, he'd been watching this young society beauty grow into a woman and he'd been lusting after her for so long that this night it just became too much. I mean, how did he think that was going to go, honestly? Well... It's not going to end well, is it? He, I, I think he'd made his peace with that because apparently... This is what Murray testified that he'd said when he came in brandishing his sword. Madam, I mean to ravish you, for I have entertained a violent love for you for a long time. But as there is so great a difference betwixt your fortune and mine, I despair of enjoying my wishes by any means but force. Oh, well, I guess, I mean, he's announcing it. Yeah, he's, It doesn't he's make it any open. better, but... He's like, society is against my love for you. So rather than ask if you'd like to elope with me, I'm just going to come in here with a sword and we'll see what happens. Apparently they spent an hour discussing the situation where she sort of said, please don't rape me. Um, But he said, after an hour of discussing it, no, I have ventured my life for your sake already and therefore I'm resolutely bent to go through with my design. Let the consequences be what it will. All the rest of the family are asleep and if I lose this opportunity, I can never expect another. So I think he was of the opinion, you know, regardless now, um, I'm probably going to be arrested. Uh, and rightfully so. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying he shouldn't be arrested. So he's like, well, I, I'm, I'm going to be arrested for attempted um, ravishing. I may as well ravish because I'm not going to get another opportunity, which is fair because I don't think they'll keep him on as a as a as a servant. I mean, he's he's royally screwed it up, hasn't he? Mm. And I don't think he'll get a reference to be fair. <laughs> you know, he may be blackballed from the old footmaning positions in the future. But because he'd taken an hour and because, you know, I mean, Griselda, she was a strong person and she did not really want to be ravished by this man. No. The hullabaloo that ensued was enough to wake some of the other people in the house who came into the room uh, and restrained Arthur Gray before he'd managed to get either of his weapons out of their sheaths. Good. Which is, yeah, it's a good thing. Now, understandably, he was, you know, a footman. He was um, convicted on the say-so of the family and, you know, the fact that he was caught in the act. Yeah. And he was sentenced to death. But... Griselda Murray herself went to bat for him and managed to get him a pardon. Did she have Stockholm Syndrome? No, apparently, and this is according to a former um, a former topic of our podcast, Lady Mary Wortley Montague, who was a friend of Griselda. Okay. Griselda felt bad because she had been flirting with Arthur Gray for many years. So she thinks she might have led him on. She it's felt still not partially responsible. No. Um, to the point where she didn't want him to die. She's like, well, you, you know, you you need to go to prison. Yeah. Or, or at least very far away from me. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't want you here anymore. But I don't think it's fair that you die. Okay, so she wanted him in trouble, but not death. Mm. Okay. So 
and he was sentenced to a long prison sentence instead. I don't actually know, because obviously they don't follow him beyond that. He's a poor footman. Oh no, why would they? Why he would went they to trace he him? went to jail for time. <laughs> a, a ravishing gone wrong. And I think the moral of that story is if you are going to ravish someone, you, you don't really want to spend an hour discussing the pros and cons of it with the, the ravishee. No. If... Or better better yet, just don't try and ravish. I mean, I'm glad that it never happened. Because she was flirting with him. He could have, you know, asked if she wanted to go to the local pie shop or, you know, something. He could... There were many other options open to him, I guess is what I'm saying. I love a pie shop. If someone told me there was a pie shop in their house, I'd go back. But apparently that was, it was the, the scandal of the season. Well, of the, of just, the 1734 just, season, that was the of, story. Well, it bloody would be as well. Did you hear about that boy? He almost ravished me. He almost ravished young Griselda. Who would have wanted her then? (laughs) She would have been ashamed to her family. Um, I don't believe that. That's what the society would have said. We're up to the H's. Huh. Huh. And in honour of all politicians everywhere... Hate speech. We're just going to... We're just going to mention a letter written by a politician called Anthony Henley. In 1730. He was at that time the MP for Southampton. And he received a respectful request from one of his constituents that he should vote against some tax changes uh, that had been proposed in that year's budget. Okay. His reply, verbatim, and this is, again, 1730. So when people hark back to that age of respect and, you know, uh, polite society, that bygone age of of British manners... I have received your letter about the excise, and I am surprised at your insolence in writing to me at all. You know, as I know, I bought this constituency. About what you say about the excise, may God's curse light upon you, and may it make your women as open and as free to the excise officers as your wives and daughters have always been to me, while I have represented your scoundrel corporation. What? Oh my God. No, 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 because he's not finished, because you have to sign off. I have the honour to be, dear sirs, ever your obliged, humble servant. (laughs) (laughs) Which, I mean, literally, I've had sex with your wife. (laughs) That's so funny. Do we know if it's true? Well, no, no, it's just just him. Slander. Yeah, it's... I don't have to listen to you because I have bought this seat as an MP, so your your opinion means nothing. Also, I can have any woman that I wish, but I am your humble servant. <laughs> he continued to represent Southampton for the next 11 years. So it didn't hurt him in any way to just call out a constituent like this. What a dick. I know. Uh, so when we say that, you know, there's there's a lack of civility in politics... Ever, Mm. ever was it so. Yes. Thus and thence. Eyes. And we've got a person who I believe, I believe is still alive, although his heyday was in the late 70s. Uh. And it is a dance teacher, aerobics instructor, which was how you know he was alive in the 80s. Yeah. And inventor, most importantly, called Derek Imrie. Cool. And he, he he had worries in the late 70s, early 80s. Didn't we all? 
I mean, I wasn't there, but <laughs> he he was he was worried that gay men seeking love they might be too worried to approach each other in public for fear that they'd misread the signs and that they were about to okay, proposition yeah. a heterosexual man who who would take such great offence at being found attractive that yeah. you know violence might ensue. Mm-hmm. And he thought, I need, I need to come up with some subtle way that two, two gay men might be able to figure out that, that there's an opportunity there. Yeah. In, in a subtle way. And bear in mind, this is we're, what, 15, 20 years before Grinder, So there was a need. <laughs> there was a need for this. There's always been a need. And he thought, well, what, what can I create to help with this problem? And he came up with an invention, which was a small box or cup that you would wear over your genitals within the pants, because it'd be weird if you were wearing it over the pants. I know. Really <laughs> give it off. So you wore it a bit like a, a cricket protector, okay, you know, yeah, a cricketer's yeah. box. And when two gay men passed each other, if they were both wearing the, wearing the box, they would both start to vibrate. <laughs> So that you could... Um, oh, so you... T- you know, you'd go walking down the street with your special gaydar on. Your and gaydar it literally vibrated cup. your cup. It would vibrate your cup, and then you'd sort of turn around and go, ooh. And you'd look for the other person who was, you know, squirming in the in the pants awkwardly, and you go, that's the that's the fella. He is also wearing the, the gaydar pants. Yeah, but what about if you didn't fancy them? Then you'd just carry on. I think it's a bit like, I don't know how Grinder works, but I assume you swipe one way or the other. Oh my god! You just run. I off. don't even. I don't even want to explain it. It's just trash. Okay. It's trash. Well, this this he felt this was the this was the answer mm-hmm. that you you could you know, you, you'd never get mixed signals again. You'd know that if someone's wearing the cup and they're vibrating, they're out for a good time. I mean, good on him for uh, thinking of such things. And to be honest, he had a few interested. Um, Manufacturers. Some people were actually going. Do you know? No, no. It sounds ridiculous. Maybe Derek is onto something here. They did do some tests, and production was temporarily suspended after they found that if you used it in the countryside, it seemed to attract various wild animals, <laughs> particularly badgers. Badgers seemed oh. to quite like <gasps> the vibrating cup. Can you imagine a badger going for your nuts? However, he did receive a large order from Australia, cool. which turned out to be um, a prank. Uh, God bless those Aussies. And as far as I know, it never went into large-scale production, which is a shame. I'm, I, I might bring it back. And it's, I mean, you know, he, he was inventing a vibrating device to help people have sex. And we did a, an episode on uh, Mr. Grenville, uh, Mr. Granville, even, who accidentally invented the vibrator when all he wanted to do was, uh, you know, relieve people's gout symptoms. Yes, yes. So it, just, it seems a bit of a shame that the person who invented the vibrating device for sex didn't get to make it, whereas the person who invented a vibrating device specifically not for sex is remembered as the inventor of the vibrator. So yes, hopefully, isn't it was, it yeah, one person. Funny how life turns out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was still an aerobics instructor, and as we all know, that was not a short-lived fad in the 80s. So I'm sure he was fine, monetarily. Buffing. Mm. So Jay. Jay J- the Joe. And we're just going to talk about how great I am. 
for you the know, next 25 minutes. They say uh, Jai in Scotland. For Joe? For Jay. Jai. Is that, yeah. Jai. Like, that sounds hey, a bit Essex. Jai. Like, hey, Jai. Is it Jai? Jai. It's not Jay, it's Jai. Yeah, Jai. it's Jai. 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 I've said it too long now and I've confused it's, myself. It's lost all meaning. Yeah. Well, we're not talking about Joseph. We're talking about Charles Horace Jones. <gasps> Horace, what a name. I know. Unfortunately, just his middle name. Yeah. CHJ. And we did, um, a little while ago, William McGonagall, who was considered the worst poet in the world. Oh, yes, I remember that. Yeah. Uh, great Scottish poet. If he yeah. was the worst poet in the world, Charles Horace Jones has an argument for being the most hated poet in the world. <laughs> okay, that's a strong claim. Because for 45 years, he distributed his poems in the streets of Merthyr Tydfil. Whether people liked it or not. Well, it wasn't so much the, the, the quality, it was um, his targets. And I think you could only call them targets because he used his, his poetry to denounce all things Welsh. Okay. Again, in Merthyr Tydfil. Yeah. Uh, so BBC Wales, the Church of Wales, Welsh politicians, and even Welsh rugby, which seems a dangerous game to play. Yeah, those rugby boys knock you out. So as an example, uh, in 1956, he suggested that Wales as a nation had lost its nerve and found it all in the blown-up bladder of a rugby ball. Okay. Basically, you you know, you're impotent as a nation and all you have left is this one sport that you're putting way, way too much on. Oh, I mean, that's not very nice, is it? A gang of rugby supporters who heard this lovely little ditty confronted Jones outside a butcher's shop. He escaped through a side door, but after that experience, he always carried a knuckle duster in his trousers, just in case. Okay, yeah, yeah. It didn't help him, though, because on another occasion, he was knocked unconscious by a local businessman, who then tried to set fire to him. Okay. Imagine writing poetry that angered someone to the point where they wanted to set you on fire while you were unconscious. Knocking you out wasn't enough. Burn him! (laughs) He is a witch. (laughs) I saw a nice little meme the other day, Mm. and I'm probably going to butcher it, but it was like, we teach people to fear the witches, but not the men that burnt them. Which is so true, isn't it? We're like, yeah, be scared of the witch. Be scared of the person that's different. But why be scared of the random person who's like, do you know what we need to do? We need to to throw her into a pond. And if she floats, let's burn her. Yeah. And if she sinks, well, it's collateral, <laughs> collateral damage. That's fine. So he had been a miner before randomly in the middle of the night. He'd woken up with the muse inside of him and he'd wrote his first poem on the back of a cigarette packet. <laughs> OK, fine. And from that point on, he refused to do any more work. And he was supported by his long suffering wife, Delia, who took a part time job in a baker's shop. I'd love to work in a bakery, I think. Would you? Yeah. In 1966, a collection of Jones's work. Why would you want to work in a baker's shop? Because you don't get to eat it. And it seems like it's you get up early. Yeah, but I get you early work anyway. really hard. It's really hot and sweaty. I, I just don't see the appeal. I think my mum used to manage a bakery for like years. And managing and, a bakery is um, different though. Yeah. And um, I'd go in sometimes on a Saturday and help out. Um, I'd always get a free sandwich. Oh, you know? okay. yeah. It was... It was good. We'd always get like free bread. 
Like, I mean, we were we were poor as fuck, so it was good. I mean, not much has changed. <laughs> to be honest, I just don't have a bakery mum now to send oh. me bakery loaves. Is that what you want? You basically want to bake. You you want to bake work in a bakery so that you're given free bread, so that you don't starve. Yeah. Cool. I do love a, I do love a bap, you know. See, I'd, I'd imagine that you were handed a French stick because they're a bit harder when you you know you're running through the streets of. Um, I was going to say Agrabah, like Aladdin. Uh, I have you fine. as Aladdin in this. Arabian Nights. <laughs> you know, if you're trying to do that with a bap, um, by the end of that chase scene, it will be just mush. And you could well, you you could use the French stick as a weapon as well. Oh, potentially, yeah. You can definitely cut the roof of your mouth on them. I love a French stick. Anyway, in 1966, a collection of Jones's work, The Challenger, was published by Merthyr Tydfil Council. So they published his poems at a cost to themselves of one hundred and fifty-two pounds and ten shillings. I mean, that's very nice of them, isn't it? It is. They obviously believed in their. I think they um, they knew that they had something that was a bit of a you know it could drum up bit, tourism. A bit of a gimmick. Yeah. The day after it appeared, Jones took up his position by a lamppost in the marketplace and abused the council for wasting taxpayers' money. After publishing his... For publishing his work. He then went out the very next day and went, see, these guys are idiots, they don't know what they're doing, this is your money, and they've spent it on a book of poetry. Are you having a laugh? Although he would have done it all in verse. I mean, this this is crazy talk. (laughs) When he was asked why he always stood next to a lamppost, he explained that it meant that he could only be assaulted from one side. Oh, OK. Fair, fair dues. <laughs> what a lovely man. So, yeah, possibly the most hated poet in the world. Yeah, I'm not a massive poetry fan. Like, no, actually, I don't really like any poetry. I get bored. Sorry. <laughs> ah, it's funny that you were talking about um, witches and... The fact that we're taught to fear witches. Yes. Dame Alice Keitler. Dame Alice Keitler was born in 1285. Oh, we've gone way back. Yeah. Because in 1325, an inquisition was set up under the control of the Bishop of Ossory to investigate seven counts of sorcery practised in Kilkenny by a band of witches led by Dame Alice. Kilkenny is where my friend lives, and it's one of the most beautiful places in Ireland you will ever go. So everyone must go to Kilkenny. Good. Well, I, I mean, whether it's beautiful or not, apparently there was some sorcery afoot. Although, having read the story, I think there's an ulterior motive. See if you can spot the subtle ulterior motive here. Alice Keitler had been married four times, and the charges were brought against her by the sons of her first three marriages okay they accused her of murdering their respective fathers magically and presenting her inherited wealth to her favorite son from her fourth husband william outlaw that's a name isn't it Mm. her current husband they claimed had been reduced to such condition by her potions and powders as he had become emaciated his nails had dropped off and there was no hair on his body Mm. so it sounds a bit like her fourth husband had cancer (laughs) Yes, so or some he's kind of wasting disease. Not well. Hmm. But can you spot the ulterior motive there from the three disinherited sons? Hmm. I wonder. Because I'm sure if if she just dies as a witch, then all of those things just revert back to the oldest male heir gets it, rather than her passing them over. Yeah. Yeah. 
but it was enough, you know, to to have um, an investigation. Yeah. Now, unfortunately for Dame Alice, much incriminating evidence was found. Okay. Including a sacrificial wafer from the church with the devil's name on it. When anyone says wafer, I just think of them pink wafer biscuits that used to get a, like, parties when you were a child, like, with party rings as well. If that helps, with the devil's name on it, though. Yeah. And I don't Lucifer. Know if, well, I don't know if they meant Lucifer or if it just said devil. <laughs> or if she had a pet name for him, you know. It's Deville, darling. Deville. Uh, she also had a broomstick... Because imagine a woman in 1325 owning a broomstick. I mean, she's a witch, surely. How? What other possible use could she have for this cleaning implement? Cleaning up after all you dirty men! But according to her sons, she used to amble and gallop through thick and thin with it. I mean, surely that's just a way of cleaning. Yeah, I, I, she cleaned vigorously is how yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. reading that. Yeah. She had a she had a broomstick and she cleaned so fast, she'd say, oh, I'm flying around the house today. So she was flying that broomstick. I have no further questions, Your Honour. Why would you want to do that to your mum? Like, because they want the money. It's just not very nice. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much money she had. Ten pence. Apparently, though, I mean, this is a bit weird. One of her habits was to sweep clean the streets of Kilkenny, shoving all of the litter down towards the front door of William Outlaw, her favourite son. And while she was doing this, she was chanting, to the house of William, my son, all the wealth of Kilkenny town. I mean, it's a bit odd, but fine. I mean... Well, she she, she was just piling outside his door. Did she she not like him? Well, she gave him all the money. He was getting the entire inheritance, but she was also sweeping all the rubbish from Kilkenny, the entirety of the town... To her son's door. It's quite a big town. I'm not sure how big it would have been then. There's a plague pit there that you can go visit. A shopping centre now stands on top of it, but it's... uh... Well, the plague pit's probably outside of William Outlaw's house because she was bringing and dumping all the dead bodies. Like, the wealth of Kilkenny Town. Dunk. It's such a nice place. Take out the gold teeth, my son. You'll be richer still. (laughs) Worse still, it was reported. It was rumoured. It was a complete barefaced lie that she had sacrificed nine red cocks and nine peacocks' eyes, which seems is, an odd number of peacocks' eyes to me. This is just slander. Yeah, that's not even double figures. Why nine? Well, it means that you've either got like four blind peacocks and one with an eye patch, <laughs> or you've got nine peacocks with an eye patch, or the, some combination of the two. The Gabrielle of peacocks. The Gabrielle of peacocks. Well, you know they're fancy, and Gabrielle was fancy. So oh, I love the big Gabrielle. Yeah. Oh, I've got nothing wrong with it, and I don't yeah. think she should have hid her lazy eye. I don't think it's a particular problem these days. I love that dreams song. Are you going to sing it? I thought you. Were, I thought you were going to sing it. No, no one needs to hear that. I've sung enough through this episode. Okay. Well, she had to. She had to um, sacrifice these peacocks' eyes. Because she had a pet incubus, okay, which is a male sex demon, uh, called Art. Great. And she was accused of having carnal knowledge of Art when he came to her in the form of a cat, a big black hairy dog, or in the likeness of an African man. This is just getting silly now, isn't, isn't it? it? Anyway, while they were busy describing the way that she was having sex with these various, um, you know, incarnations of art her sex demon and probably getting a little bit carried away let's be fair mm. you know way way too much description description and lots of people having to rush off to the labs yeah uh, she just walked off <laughs> i'm done here 
and she she walked off, got on a boat, went to England, and was never heard from again. <laughs> okay. She's like, okay, I'm just going to leave you guys with whatever I've... mess you're making up here, and I'm going to go somewhere a bit more sensible. Okay. I've cursed Kilkenny. Goodbye. <laughs> My son already has all of the wealth of Kilkenny Town, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna bounce now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> See ya. Bless her. I just love the idea that you could walk away from your own inquisition as a witch. Just, uh, I'm just done here, guys. Do you need me here? No? Okay, I'm just going just gonna to leave. Goodbye. Brilliant. I like her. L. L. For lady. I'm a lady. For Lady Margaret Lamborn. Mm. He was born in 1550. Yeah, do you know what? I'm really enjoying the variety of dates that we've got going on. Mm. You're well, taking tried, me everywhere. I tried to do a mix, but, you know, all of these stories, and you read these little bits and these little snippets. I was trying to do um, famous British assassins okay. uh, when I came across Lady Margaret Lambin because she she was a royalist. She was one of those people who, like today, would be, you know, buying all the mugs and following the stories of Meghan and Kate and Harry and Wills and their children and yeah. everything that's going on with Charles. They'd be, you know, getting way too into it, like it's their own family. She was one King, of those guys. King Sausage Fingers. Yes, but this was back in uh, Elizabeth I's reign. She was really into the monarchy. Yeah. And she was loving the subplot, the will-they-won't-they they kind of relationship between the cousins, uh, Elizabeth and Mary, Queen of Scots. Yeah. And she was horrified when Mary, Queen of Scots, was beheaded in 1587. I mean, I think Elizabeth I was also horrified, yeah, well, she although felt that, that's what she says. Yeah, she felt that Lizzie had betrayed Mary, she, you know, and this, this lovely fan sort of storyline that she built up in her head was never going to happen now. Flesh and blood. Yeah. Two single cousins, one queen of Scotland, one queen of England, fighting together for the common good. She built up this mythos that was going to happen, and now it was all ruined, and she got very upset, did Lady Margaret. So she decided... She needed to kill Queen Elizabeth the first. <laughs> okay, fine. Spoiler, it didn't happen. Did it not? I can tell you that. She then put on a ginger wig and became the imposter. <laughs> no, um, she decided that the only way she was going to do it is to infiltrate the court dressed as a man in a greatcoat with two muskets concealed therein. One with which to shoot the Queen... And the other to turn upon herself, because although she, you know, there'd never been an occasion of a woman being hung, drawn, and quartered. It, there was, if it's the queen, yeah, then... I think she's like, well, if if I do manage to to shoot the queen, I'm I'm probably going to be treated pretty poorly before I die. I suppose that's, I guess that's an issue with uh, being famous or being royal. There's always someone that's going to want to kill you mm, for some slight that you don't even know about. Yeah, you'll be completely unaware. I mean, there were plenty of people who probably had a legitimate reason to want Queen Elizabeth dead, but this one I, I don't think was. This mm. was just someone who got very upset by the fact that one of her favourite royals had been uh, knocked, knocked off. Yeah, She managed to get into court and she crept up on the Queen while Elizabeth was in the garden. I mean, that's impressive that she got in. <laughs> now, do you know how the last one we were talking about, uh, Blind Peacocks? Yeah. As she was creeping up on Elizabeth I, one of the muskets accidentally discharged, shooting dead a peacock. <laughs> Maybe that's where the one eye thing... I mean, I know different dates. But... Yeah. The, the, yeah, apparently peacocks, considering they're not native to England, have been involved in many a story. Yeah, 
they're, they're very beautiful, though. Uh, but it given the game away that accidental discharge in the dead peacock and Lady Lambon, she was she was seized. Get her. And once they'd made sure there were no more, they took the second musket, searched to make sure there were no more muskets about her person, and Elizabeth herself, Queen of England, approached and asked, "What the fuck are you doing?" <laughs> What's your problem? And Lady Margaret, she explained that she she had loved Mary, despite having never met her, so much that she felt she had to kill the Queen in, in response to that. Okay, and what was Lizzie's response? Ah, she said, you have done your duty. Now what do you think my duty is? <laughs> and Lady Lambourne, she may not have had muskets, but she had balls. Yeah. About her person because she she actually replied, You must pardon me. <laughs> uh, I think you'll find I must not. No, she, she she went, Okay. And we'll say no more about the matter. No, she didn't. She did. Shut up. Lady Margaret Lambin was able to carry on with her title <laughs> and no no ill effects at all for having tried to shoot Queen Elizabeth the First. This is brilliant. Why yeah. don't we all know about this? Because it was unsuccessful, and because there's no there's no blood. I suppose it's embarrassing, isn't it, yeah. for them that so like that they got into court and they got so close to the monarch and stuff. Yeah, it's like oh shit. Um, if you don't say anything about this, we won't then say we anything won't, about it. Yeah. Let's just all pretend this never happened, and it was a bit of a snafu. <laughs> but yes, that was an attempt upon the royal personage of Queen Elizabeth the First. Well, that's a good story. I like it. And but for an accidental discharge at a peacock, it may have been the end of Elizabeth. Who knows what would have happened then? Oh, God, it's one of those um, what-if mm. stories. And you can you can go ahead and write that alternative history um, fiction novel. No. <laughs> I will not. Okay. And that is the end of part one. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser of Recently Eccentric, here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week. <laughs>